When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and after a long hiatus, we finally have a very special guest back on the podcast for Volume 3 of the Rookie Rank. So I am, of course, joined by Draft Deeper himself, Nathan Gribble. Nathan, how are you doing this fine afternoon? I'm doing well, Nick. I apologize for my longer absence as I took a little bit of a writing hiatus. I promise it was not just to avoid doing this podcast with you. I actually (laughs) had some things going on in my life, but I'm glad that I was able to come back with a little bit of a bang in this one. For everyone who's already read the rookie rank column over on NoSlingsNBA.com, first of all, thank you. Second of all, I would love to know how long it took you to get through it because it is a little bit of a monster. We're going to try our best to cover the majority of it on this pod episode, but I had to had to come back with something strong since I hadn't written in a few weeks, so I'm glad you're having me on to talk about it. Honestly, I was pretty sure you weren't ducking me. I was pretty sure you were ducking Keegan Murray, but that's that's a different discussion, which we will get he into. He is unavoidable at this point in the podcast. So Keegan is absolutely unavoidable. I, I blatantly insisted on making sure that Keegan was on the list, which he should have been anyway, but hey, that's a different discussion, which we'll get into in a little bit. But we are going to do the Rookie Rank in the same format, the podcast in the same format as we did the previous two, which is we have two rookies that we are highlighting for this episode. And then, of course, we will go through the rest of the ladder. We'll touch briefly on everybody in the top 10. We'll touch on the honorable mentions. But there are two players that we're going to focus on today. And the first of those players came in at number three on the Rookie Rank. And it is friend of the program and friend of the Oklahoma City Thunder fan base, Jalen Williams. So I'm just going to let you go here, Nathan. What were your thoughts on Jalen Williams when you dug into the film for this piece? Jalen Williams is one of the most fascinating players that we can study in this rookie class. And really his story is remarkable, right? Given where he was coming from as far as draft stock was concerned during last cycle, how many top 60 boards was he honestly on? before the college season started. I'd venture to say less than 5% of anyone who is actually sharing their boards in the public space. <laughs> I think that's generous. <laughs> that, that, that could very well be generous as well. But I know our own Tyler Rucker was on him. I know some of the the, the cats over at ESPN, shout out to, to Mike Schmitz, was on him as well. But with Jalen Williams, the biggest reason why he rose up draft boards, at least for us at No Ceilings, was the level of versatility that he had to his game, right? And that, specifically on the offensive end, that's a big reason why he stood out in the rookie season and why I think the Oklahoma City Thunder valued in general bringing him into their organization because he fits perfectly along with the other Jalen Williams, who we may or may not touch on at some point uh, across this podcast, but they just fit what they're building in Oklahoma City. These guys with with legitimate positional size, in in Jalen Williams' case, or J-Dub, I should say, 
it's not necessarily his height, but his wingspan. He has a seven foot two wingspan. So that allows him in itself to cover a number of positions defensively while also playing a number of roles offensively. And he's done everything, Nick, from slide down the lineup to essentially play point forward for this team and bring the ball up, initiate the offense. He's been a spot up guy. He's been a cutter, a transition threat. And he's even done a little bit of work in the post, whether that be on offense or defense. One of the underrated skills that we highlighted throughout his draft evaluation last year was his passing ability, his his instincts and his willingness to move the ball at the right times in the right situations and make plays for others. That has certainly stood out at the NBA level. His rebounding is carried over on both sides of the ball. So really, Nick, I know I've listed off a lot of things without necessarily going too deep into one particular skill, but just that versatility across the board was a big reason why I would have moved him into the lottery conversation last year at one point. I even mocked him to go in the lottery and and around it. We were doing some mock draft exercises close to the draft. Like I was a big fan of him possibly going to the, the Charlotte Hornets, for example. I just thought that they needed to bring in really good basketball players who could do a number of different things and who could be counted on at any given point in time. And Jalen Williams has shown that he can not only be counted upon, For the Thunder, he could very well have an all-star ceiling of his own within the next couple of years, which is something I would love to get your take on where you landed with his evaluation, Nick, not just what you were projecting in the long term, but even in some of the short term, just where you were at on him and how high you thought his ceiling was in particular, because I did not expect to be uttering those words with Jalen Williams. I thought he'd be a really good role player, but to even utter his name in the same breath as saying the word star – I didn't expect to say something like that. I don't know where you're at. I am very much in the same place. I did not expect this kind of breakout season for him. I expected that he would find a place as a role player, but I mean, you know, for him to be as good as he's been this quickly is definitely not something that I was expecting. And I do want to sort of highlight the defensive stuff for a moment because he has a really interesting defensive profile, especially given the Thunder team around him. I mean, when you're starting backcourt, essentially is a 6'6 guy in Shea Gilgis-Alexander and a 6'9 guy in Josh Giddy, you know, that gives a lot of room for a player like Jalen Williams to move around. And, you know, he's someone who, as we'll talk about when we get into the offensive side, you know, the three-point shot is, you know, coming along, but not anywhere close to elite level. I think that, I think it would mm-hmm. be fair to say, but because, you know, he's playing with, you know, 6'6 point guard, 6'9 point guard, essentially, in Gideon uh, FGA, he has so much more flexibility to size up and down the lineup because they have, you know, big point guards. It makes it easier to sort of figure out the defensive alignment around those two guys because they have size at those two positions. And then with Lou Dort essentially being the shooting guard, you know, that does lock in Jalen Williams to bigger positions, which, as you mentioned, he's spent a lot of time at power forward, which certainly was not something I would have expected for him coming into the year. No, but again, that just speaks to what the Thunder are able to do with with a numerous amount of lineups within their rotation, right? Being able to play him at power forward, he has that length. He has the strength to be able to contest forwards down low or or certainly play somebody in the corners. He has the ability to come out, maybe guard a little bit and pick and roll. I know he's, he's certainly, he struggled in that area a little bit in college. I thought he was a little bit better in screen navigation than some people wanted to give him credit for. He struggled with a, a little bit in the NBA, but still he's somebody who, even if he gets beat, right? If somebody gets a step on him, he has the length to be able to, recover and still make a play on the ball which is something not everyone always has at his position so with his 
physical tools, with his willingness to defend, with how he processes the game in general. He He's a very smart basketball player. So when you pair him with guys like SGA, like Giddy, you know that they're all going to be able to cover for each other in, in some form or fashion because they're all looking at, at the game through very similar lenses. So where one makes a mistake, the other one or two can certainly come over and help recover and, and still offer the ability to make a play. And that's something that I don't think the Thunder have had enough of in, in recent years since they really did the, the bigger teardown and they've been rebuilding, quote-unquote. Now, even if SGA isn't the, the best point-of-attack defender, you have somebody, as you mentioned, like Josh Giddy, this, this big wing-slash-guard who can come over and help. You have somebody like Jalen Williams. You have the 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 other Jalen Williams, right, who who is showing a little bit of defensive versatility himself. You have a lockdown guy like Luke Dork who can certainly guard somebody one-on-one, and then you're going to be able to bring Chet Holmgren into the mix next year to really lock down everything that's going on around the paint. So from a defensive perspective, again, it, it really fits into what they're trying to do offensively. Just have as many guys on the court who can cover enough skills, enough areas as possible to make up for any other deficiencies and really just bring this unison concept together on both sides of the ball. Yeah, there's just so much versatility with this Thunder team on both sides of the ball, and they run out a lot of lineups. I mean, they were, I remember they were doing this in Summer League, and we were, you know, just incredibly excited when they brought out Chet Holmgren and Usman Jang, and I think it was Aaron Wiggins, J Dub, and Josh Giddy, maybe. And it was like, this is a lineup of five guys who are 6'6 or taller, who can all handle the ball, who can all pass, who can all, you know, at least theoretically shoot from distance. And you know, it makes the defensive side of things so much more difficult when you have to watch out for every player on the court to do basically any yeah anything you could expect from a basketball player. And and who are you going to pick on too, right? Yeah. Like, who like e- even if even if you want to say okay, well Jalen Williams, well if he's playing like the three four, he can get by covering a corner shooter. He can be away from the action a little bit and just kind of be like a a, a rover help defender. Fine, go ahead, bring him into a ball screen action. You're you're telling me you're going to pick on. Jalen Williams and, and have an easy time doing it. You're telling me you're going to have the easiest time in the world picking on somebody like Josh Giddy or Luke Dort or the other Jalen Williams. What the, 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 the defender you're probably most likely to pick on would be Shea Gilgis Alexander. Well, that's fine. He hasn't always been the most engaged on ball defender, but at the same time, he's still a big guard at six, six with length himself. So it's like that. That's really, to me, what stood out is, is you, you said, and I've said it, but, who are you going to pick on defensively on this team? So let's move over to the offensive side of the ball for J-Dub. And it's a very similar story. I mean, you know, other than his three-point shot, which has really actually come around in the last couple of months after he was below 30% to start the season. You know, that's really the biggest area that you would sort of look at as hopefully an area of improvement for him. But I mean, he's done such a great job with, you know, running plays, with keeping the ball moving and, You know, it's the kind of thing where, again, you know, he's getting these opportunities and he's showing that, you know, if you trust him to make a good decision on either end of the floor, he's going to make the right read pretty much every time. And, you know, maybe you'd want him to be a slightly better shooter outside the arc, but he's also shooting 58% on two pointers, which is pretty staggering, especially for, you know, someone who's 6'5", 6'6", like he is. He's just got such a well-rounded offensive game and it just makes it so easy for the rest of the Thunder players to sort of fit around him. 
which is weird yeah, to he, say about someone who's not your main guy, but he does enable them to play a lot more versatile lineups out there. He's having his best month so far offensively. So he's his splits for the month of February, 47% from the field, 40% from three-point range, 81% from the line. He's only he's almost at making, you know, as many threes as he's made in other months of the season. He's about four to five threes behind, but he's on about half the attempts. So he's cut down on the number of threes he's taken, but proven that if his shot selection improves, which it certainly has to what we're talking about, then he is a guy who can be relied upon to make shots from the perimeter. And then if he's getting to the free throw line consistently, that's the other big thing that we're going to talk about with some of the other guys in the rookie rank, right? Like my, my top two players, Paolo and Matherin, they are guys who consistently get to the free throw line. We're starting to see more of that confidence from Jalen Williams. We're starting to see him knock down more of those free throws. And it, it's helping him gain more confidence in his all-around game. And it's also helping the team, him bringing – an offensive rating of 119 to the table in the month of February. That's really what you want to see. And the reason why is he's taking better shots. He has more confidence in what he's doing, getting downhill, getting into the paint and drawing contact to get to the line. And then really he's just doing whatever else that's asked of him on the floor. If he needs to cut, he will cut. If he needs to handle the ball in transition, he will. If he needs to fill the lane transition, he will. He is willing to do every single thing that team is asking of him which just makes drafting a player like that so valuable for your franchise. Having someone who could just fill in no matter what the lineup composition is and do a little bit of everything, I think that goes underrated sometimes when we talk about prospects heading into the draft. With Jalen Williams, the Thunder certainly didn't understate that part of his game, and they're really reaping the benefits now. And the tale of Jalen Williams this season pretty closely mirrors the tale of OKC's season, actually. At the end of December, they were 15 and 21. And now, after an absolute beatdown of the Houston Rockets heading into the All Star break, they're one game below 500 at 28 and 29. And I. Definitely did not expect the Thunder to be anywhere near 500 this season. And yet, you know, a huge part of that is SGA has taken a huge leap. Josh Giddey's taken a pretty big leap since last season. But, you know, they went from, you know, having sort of a question mark at the forward slot to having Jalen Williams just slot right in pretty much perfectly. Yeah, I think as it stands, where we're at in the All-Star break, now, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're top 10 in, in both offense and defense in the league over the last X amount of games. I think it's... I think it's around since when the calendar flipped to 2023. They, they've been one of the best teams in the NBA by record, by offense, by defense. Like, what aren't they doing? They're finding their chemistry, their stride at the perfect time, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from a quote-unquote tanking team, right? They thought they were going to be near the forefront of the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. Well, they may not have to be. Maybe they do have enough talent on this roster to keep building. Maybe Sam Presti can make a few trades to keep deepening the roster. And then, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, oh, by the way, they're getting the number two overall pick of this last draft to come join them next season in Chet Holmgren to really add and, and, and fortify the depth and the talent level down low, surround, surrounded, obviously, by all of these young, fascinating guards and wings. So what OKC has built what they're trending towards, what they're trying to accomplish this season. It's it's admirable, it's remarkable, and I'm like you. I've been really impressed by the run. Yeah, they have Victor Wembanyama at home, a.k.a. Chet Holmgren, hopefully coming back into the fold next year. But <laughs> even if we're not talking about the last two months, per basketball reference, they are 12th in offensive rating, 11th in defensive rating, and 10th in net rating. Mm -hmm. That's so far ahead of where I expected this team to be at this point in their in their process.
Absolutely. The shout, shout out to OKC fans. You guys are having a blast right now. And I can't wait to talk with you guys more around draft time, but it won't be it won't be the same type of conversation. It's going to be a little bit different. We're going to look at a different part of the board when I'm talking with, with OKC media and fans versus where I thought you guys were going to be. So really kudos on an extraordinary season. You know who else is having a blast this season? Sacramento Kings fans. So we are now, of course, going to talk about number four on the rookie rank ladder. And you tried to pretend that we'd already covered this guy so that we didn't have to cover him for this podcast. And I refuse to allow it. We are going to talk about Keegan Murray here on this rookie rank episode. So just to quickly read off the basic stats for him, 12 points a game, four and a half rebounds a game, just a tick over an assist per game, half a block per game, 0.7 steals per game, less than a turnover per game. 44, 42, 79 shooting splits. So <laughs> you you lead off by you know, by nagging him a little bit. No, his game still isn't sexy, but it's highly effective for any player in the NBA, let alone a rookie. And that, I mean, that is, you know, clear. And, you know, I mentioned how Jalen Williams sort of slid in perfectly to the OKC lineup. You know, Tyler Ruck and I talked about this last year before the draft, but the whole Keegan Murray dilemma that the Kings were faced with at number four last year, the upshot of that was Keegan Murray was about as picture perfect of a fit as you could have imagined for the Sacramento Kings roster. He, you know, was starting by game three for the Kings and him and Harrison Barnes have been one of the better forward tandems in the league, honestly, which, you know, given that Harrison Barnes struggled to start the season, a lot of that has been Keegan just being the perfect fit around him. He's really started to come around on the defensive end. He, Struggled mightily to start the year, I think that's fair to say, but I think he's looked much better in recent weeks. And, you know, as you mentioned, he rates in the 53rd percentile or higher in each of his top play types offensively besides transition. Transition one is a little bit weird, but everything else, I mean, he's been a spectacularly efficient offensive player. He's already broken the Kings rookie record for three-pointers made. And, you know, he's shown development just over the course of the season alone, especially on the defensive end. But I've talked enough about Keegan Murray. Why do you have him here at fourth on the rookie ladder? I mean, this really goes back to what he did, what he started to do in December when I came out with my last edition uh, of the rookie rank, and then really what he did all throughout January. I understand he's in a little bit of a slump right now by the numbers of the month of February. His shooting splits are 37.7, 37.5, 66.7. So across the board, those are essentially lows on the season outside of when he really was starting to get going in November. But Talking about what he's done in December, January, Nick, it's exactly what I wrote and exactly what you just laid out. He has been the perfect complimentary player to one of the best offenses that we have in the NBA. It's amazing when you add the right piece and you aren't necessarily worried about who might have the highest upside, right? Like, like Jay Nivey was, was taken one pick below Keegan Murray. I, I'm sure as a Kings fan, Nick, you're not really concerned about that as much as you might have been when the pick was first made because you're seeing the results of what happens when you do slot in a, a trustworthy player like Keegan Murray. They're, they're, they're only asking him to shoot. They're only asking him to operate off basic play types. The, the transition thing actually doesn't surprise me because by the numbers, by Synergy's metrics, he wasn't the most efficient or effective transition player last year in college, so I wasn't necessarily expecting that to change. I don't think you're looking at Keegan Murray – as this really awesome player in transition, unless you're you're kicking it out to him when when he's going to the corner, and then that that's kind of the shot that he's getting. You're not looking to him to handle the ball a ton in those situations. What you're looking at Keegan Murray to do is just be this incredibly rock solid player 
in the half court provide shot making versatility, whether it's a, a catch and shoot three point shot, a coming off movement, uh, getting to his spots in the mid range, letting it fly a- any sort of work that he can do in the post. He hasn't done a ton of that in Sacramento, nor would they want him to because they have big man Demonis Sabonis down low to, to really handle it in the post. But what hasn't Keegan Murray done from a role player perspective. And there are still areas that need to improve. He hasn't been high level rim finisher yet. His defense has been subpar compared to at least where I thought he'd be or what he showed me more of at Iowa. But I will take this kick ass of a shooter 10 times out of 10 to have on my team. And I think we really bought the type of offensive impact he could have, not just in the long term, but in the short term when we rated him as high as we did in no ceilings. And Listen, the Sacramento Kings have gone all in on offense, and you know what? It's paid out because now you guys are like it's hovering anywhere from third to fifth in the West basically all season long, and there's really no question in my mind the Kings are going back to the playoffs, which is where you guys wanted to get to, and you found a formula for how to do that. I I get it. You've you've been better defensively than I think some people want to give you credit for, but – it's primarily driven by offense and it's working. It's where the league's going. The league's trending towards offense in general, get a guy in the draft who can, no matter what you can count on him to make a perimeter shot when you need it. And that's what Keegan Murray's done for them. You brought the Jaden Ivy discussion back up. And I do want to circle back to that because I think it's a fascinating idea. I think both of those guys are much better off where they are than if the idea had been flipped because with Jaden Ivey, who we'll touch on briefly later, but with Jaden Ivey, I mean, he's gotten a lot of room to explore the studio space in Detroit, and part of that is because Cade Cunningham has missed a significant part of the season, but you know, also part of that is Detroit is a young team that is focused fully on development at this point, whereas you know the Kings haven't been a playoff contender for a while, and if they miss the playoffs, I'm going to blame you for jinxing it about 30 <laughs> seconds ago, but you know what they needed much more than you know a young potential superstar at guard was someone who could fill a bunch of needs for them at forward. And I mean, Keegan Murray, you know, outside of players who've taken single digit attempts, he's leading the Kings in three point shooting. He's, you know, just below Kevin Herter in three point attempts. And, you know, the defense again, I mean, it hasn't been great, but I really do think it's been a lot better since the turn of the year than it was the first couple of months of the season where he was pretty rough on that end of the floor. But, you know, even if he, sort of stabilizes at, you know, the level of not the best defender. Like, I don't think he's going to be, you know, as terrible as he was the first month of the season. If he just sort of settles in at below average, he's already, you know, a fifth starter level player. And then the question is just, will he get a bit more opportunity on the ball to show that he can, you know, be a little bit more of an option than he is, you know, be a third option as opposed to a fifth option. And, you know, especially given what we saw from him at Iowa, I don't think that's out of the question. Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong on, on the defense, right? I think you being the Kings fan, the resident Kings fan and no ceilings, you've watched more Sacramento basketball than I have. But I think defensively with him, it's more about, and, and I wrote this specifically in my column, proactively positioning himself to make a player contest versus being reactive and getting left in the dust, right? I think when, when he was playing at lower levels, specifically in college at Iowa, there were more chances he could take trying to survey the floor and maybe make sure that something else was locked down versus what was going on in front of him. And that if he did slip up, something happened a little quicker than he anticipated. 
he could recover a, a lot easier than what he can do at the NBA level. In the NBA, much better athletes, much better ball handlers. Everything's happening within the flow of the offense much quicker in general. If he makes a mistake or if he thinks, I got this, but really he doesn't got this, <laughs> then it's it's just hasn't worked out for him at the NBA level. And I think that it's not necessarily about the fact that he's too slow or he's not strong enough or, or all these other traits that you can list out. I think it's more so if he better proactively positions himself, he can improve not significantly on defense, but marginally enough, you know, w- within an off season. At least that's, that, that's kind of what I've seen from him. Yeah, I mean, I feel like part of it also was just in the early portion of the season, he got lost a lot more. You know, it wasn't as much that he was making gambles and missing those gambles as much as just, you know, it would be the kind of thing where he turns his head a second too late and the guy's already blown past him. Whereas now it's like, it feels like he, you know, has a better idea of where he's supposed to be, which is what we expect from rookies. I mean, basically all rookies are terrible defenders. And, you know, the fact that he's gone from, being as lost as he seemed, especially the first month and a half of the season to, you know, still, I wouldn't call him a good defender by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, it feels like his positioning is just a lot better than it was to start the season. And I, you know, certainly, you know, taking fewer gambles as part of it. I mean, he's someone who is a defensive playmaker at Iowa, who's averaging, you know, basically just over a stock per game, right? Like, 0.7 steals, 0.5 blocks per game. You know, he was a lot more of a defensive playmaker at Iowa. He was over three stocks in, yes. in, in college. So, <laughs> yeah, bit of a difference there. But, you know, I think it's more just that he's learning over the course of the season to sort of figure out where he's supposed to be. And then, you know, he'll start taking more gambles because I feel like it wasn't him, you know, taking bad gambles as much as it was him just sort of getting, getting lost a bit and then teams taking advantage of that. Right. But again, you have him on the floor for the purpose of offense and the yeah. fact that he has been as good as he has. You you talked about the shooting and how historic that run has been for a rookie. What has it done for your offense in general to have just another kick-ass shooter like that? Not not just Keegan Murray, but really being able to slot him alongside a Kevin Herter. Because if you guys had went the other way and drafted Jay Nivey, you probably wouldn't have kevin herter right that that move may very well have not have been made so having De'Aaron fox and demonis bonus surrounded by not just keegan murray but really the the trickle down effect of where you guys fell and who you took in the draft getting guys like kevin herter making sure you you, you hang on to a guy like harrison barnes versus maybe flipping him given that there's going to have to be a decision made about him well you kept him you want a playoff run Maybe he's a part of the future, maybe not. I don't know. But just the idea of having those three shooters and what it's done for De'Aaron Fox and, and Demonis Bonus, I think it's important for you to speak on that because that can close the book shut pretty quickly, in my opinion, on who should have went where and, and why, as you said, those two guys are probably better off where they are now versus if the roles were reversed. Yeah, I mean, De'Aaron Fox, you know, has much more open lanes than he did for the vast majority of last season. And a huge part of that is, you know, him partnering with Demonis Sabonis for the full season as opposed to just, okay, you know, we're throwing y'all together in February and then De'Aaron gets injured in March. So it doesn't really matter anyway. Like they get, you know, I think it was single digit games together last year or something like that. You know, that's, that's clearly the biggest part of it just because, you know, they're the two Kings all-stars, right? But I mean, having someone like Kevin Herter, who's not just, you know, the high quality shooter that he is, but someone who can create his own looks from distance, that's been a huge part of this. But yeah, I mean, 
it's interesting to think whether or not the Kings would have made that move if they had Jaden Ivey in the fold. And I feel like you're right. I feel like they probably wouldn't because they would have just said, all right, you know, we're going to try and try and work Jaden Ivey. Jaden Ivey's going to be the two guard next to De'Aaron Fox, just like he's probably going to be next to Cade Cunningham. But De'Aaron Fox is in the same kind of guard built the same way as a Cade. So you're definitely sacrificing more defensively while also probably having to work through the mixed bag that is the offense. Because as we've seen with Jaden Ivey in Detroit, I mean, he he fell off my top five. He's still right there in like my top six on my rookie rank, but he's had to go through some growing pains. He's had to go through some growing pains, getting to the basket, being more of a playmaker on offense, balancing how to find certain guys within different levels of the defense, within pick and roll. There's been so much that he's had to adjust to that wouldn't have been an easy adjustment to make with the Sacramento Kings team that's expected to be in the playoffs. So Nick, I mean, if that wouldn't have worked, if they had to go a different direction at that two guard position, I mean, what would have they really done if they weren't, if they didn't have enough patience for Ivy to really work through some of those mistakes, had he been on the roster. And I think the patience for Ivy would have also been much smaller because the performance that Tyrese Halliburton has put together for the Indiana Pacers this year would hurt a lot more if the yes, Kings were, you know, trying to slot Jaden Ivy into that role as opposed to just putting Keegan exactly where he belongs in, you know, a pretty much perfect fit for that starting lineup. And the Kings starting lineup has just been killing teams all season. And I mean, it makes sense, right? You have an all-star point guard, you have an all-star center, you have a shooting guard who's one of the best in the league at, you know, running off screens and getting his shots from deep. You have a Mm -hmm. versatile do-it-all forward who's a multiple-time champion in Harrison Barnes. And then you have Keegan Murray and basically you bring him on the floor and you say, okay, when the ball comes to you, you know, as you say, when the ball comes to you, either you shoot or you keep it moving, but you don't try and do something too much with the ball in your hands. And I feel like he's had a few more chances to like dribble and try and create something over the past month than he did over the first three months, but they don't need him to do that. And, you know, if he gets a few of those reps, great. But if he doesn't, that's fine. He's perfectly effective in the role that he's already carved out for himself. 89th percentile on all jump shots, taking 366 jumpers. I, I thought he was going to be a good shooter, potentially a great shooter in the NBA. But yeah, Nick, we, we couldn't have guessed that it was going to be this good this quick. Like what, what Keegan's done is absolutely remarkable and why, yeah, we couldn't duck talking about him on the podcast any longer. <laughs> he he has rightfully we, earned his spot. We? You think I was going to duck talking about Keegan Murray on this podcast? It, it, it's a fun running joke that we have, but the, the point to make is that <laughs> there is no reason why he should not be on a first team all rookie ballot. And I'm pretty confident despite some of the other shuffling that can still happen between this edition of rookie rank and my last edition, which will be my final ranking coming out in April, there can be a little bit of shuffling, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that I have my top four pretty set with Paolo, Ben, who I know we're going to get to in a second. And then J dub who we just talked about and Keegan Murray. I think those are, those have been the top four rookies for my money across the league. So let's actually get to that right now. So we covered your top two guys on the first edition of the Rookie Rank, and they have remained the top two guys all season. And number one, Paulo Boncaro of the Orlando Magic. He has just recently dipped below 20 points per game, and he's shot 4% from three-point range in the month of February. But even so, this Rookie of the Year award is basically his to lose. And like the OKC Thunder, the Orlando Magic, after a rough start to the season, have really turned it around and been basically around a 500 team since like, you know, the first couple of months of the season. And a huge part of that is Paulo being the incredibly 
incredibly successful player he's been. I mean, this is a team that was five and 20 in early December, and now they're 24 and 35. And a huge part of that has been what we've seen from Paulo Banquero. He's coming off an injury, so he's had to come back and, and reacclimate himself within the flow of the offense and get him back going on defense. But th- that's why I'm not going to kill him for the points per game dip. I'm not going to kill him for the, the shooting splits that you laid out for the month of February. Just what I will keep saying about Paolo Bencaro, and it's going to come up with Ben Matherin as well, the free throw shooting has mm-hmm. been awesome to see. He's taking almost eight free throw attempts per game, and he's knocking down a solid percentage of them for a rookie, 75% from the line. That willingness to attack the basket, get downhill, draw the contact, and get to the free throw line, that ups your scoring average so much, even when everything else around you is falling apart when it comes to the rest of your offensive game. If you aren't shooting the ball well, guess what? You can either be aggressive, get downhill, get to the free throw line. You can find ways to make plays for others, which he does, or he can just look to get himself involved off the ball in in, in easier situations to where he's getting himself going towards the basket or he's acting in a role man in, in pick and roll situations and he's finding better ways to set up easier shots for himself. Now that hasn't quite been the case since he's come back from injury he's struggled a little bit but at the same time Nick I'm not going to wipe away the other three plus months that I saw from him where he has clearly stood out as the top rookie in this class and and I'm not just going to wipe that away because of him trying to adjust back to the offense in like seven or eight games so he's started every single game he's played for the magic he's played almost 34 minutes a night high usage primary or secondary scoring option a lot of the time for this Orlando team. And he is one of the building blocks for the future with Franz Wagner. Rookies aren't supposed to carry that type of a load. So that's why I got Paolo at number one. And at number two, a rookie who's not carrying as substantial a load, but still is carrying a significant portion of the Indiana Pacers offense. Benedict Matherin has cooled off after his crazy hot start from three point range this season, but as you mentioned, I mean, the huge thing for him is he's continued to score 17 points a game, you know, all year long, basically because he went from, you know, ridiculously hot three-point shooting to really just getting himself to the line over and over and over and over again. And, you know, that's the kind of thing, especially when you're an 83% free throw shooter, that is just such a huge boost for your offensive game. Exactly. And and again, Matherin's been more of an off-ball player up to this point. He's come off the bench primarily for Indiana. He's only started six games out of the 60 that he's played in, but still... 28 minutes a night, right? And he's been involved in, in, in closing rotations or closing lineups as well. So they, they trust him as a rookie. They trust him to go out there and make shots when the ball swung around to him. And he's done that. He's, he's still excelling in a lot of the off-ball play types that you would want him to per synergy. You mentioned that the shooting splits that have dipped down a little bit. He's still at 32% on the year on very healthy volume from three. And yeah, he's another guy. He's taken six free throw attempts per game and he's knocking down 83% of them. Like that's that level of aggressiveness to where he is more than willing to attack closeouts, get going in transition. Doesn't matter if there's one or two defenders around the basket. He's finding ways to use his body control that we saw in college, contort, find the contact, get to the line, potentially even finish the end one. And that just sets up much more of his perimeter game. And it will help him going forward because defenses will have to respect the fact that he can get the step by them. He's a better athlete than some people would want to give him credit for. I I know that Matherin has finished some awesome dunks, 
but it's not just about the verticality and the dunking ability once he gets to the basket. That first step, he's always had that first step going back to college. He's showing that he can utilize it more, and now it's working to his benefit so that hopefully teams better respect that, and it opens up him maybe getting a a few easier jump shots off the dribble from either three-point range or just inside the arc. How well-rounded his offensive game is becoming despite some of the defensive shortcomings Indiana should be incredibly happy with the pick that they made, and he is absolutely their starting way in the future. Well, if we're talking about verticality and dunking, then I think the guy to move on to here is the number five player on the rookie rank, Jalen Duran of the Detroit Pistons. And I mean, he's been basically, you know, what we might have expected of him coming out of college, except he's just done it at an exceptionally high level, basically immediately as a lob finisher. He's absolutely insane as a rebounder and you know it's one thing to be 6'10 250 pounds and you know have a grown man's physique when you're playing against college players but as it turns out he gets to the NBA level and he's still basically that much more athletic than pretty much everybody else yep and and that's really what's carried his case as the number five player in my rookie rank and being on the all rookie first team it's amazing Nick no he doesn't always have the best box out technique no he's not always aware of every single little thing that that's going on no he he doesn't have the same timing and anticipation blocking shots in my opinion as someone like a chet holmgren who we're evaluating coming out last year but if you can jump further and and higher and and run faster than almost every single other player on the court you're probably still going to, to walk yourself into some great results night in and night out and very similar to, I've called him this before, but I've said that he's Andre Drummond 2.0. He really freaking is for that team. He is a monstrous rebounder, an elite rim finisher, lob threat, but he also has that same mobility, that coordination, that fluidity. He can cover different spots on the floor. He can defend in space. And as he continues to show more flashes of the offensive game being taking mid-range shots, some of the passing ability, particularly out of the short roll, the more opportunities he's getting, the more he's going to continue to grow his skill set and evolve into one of the comparisons that we all wanted to make for him if it hit right, which was like a bam out of bio out of Miami. So I think the the takeaway for Duran is, despite not being as polished as some of the other players around him, because of the type of athlete that he is, he is still closer to realizing his potential than I could have anticipated so early on in his career. And for that, it's kudos. It's a hat tip. It's ranking your number five. On to his teammate at number six, Jaden Ivey. And you lead off the Jaden Ivey section with, I think, the perfect summary of the situation. Jaden Ivey has had a better rookie season than he's going to get credit for having. Yes, he is. I mean, he's averaging 15 points a game. He's up to 33% from three-point range when that was a big concern for him heading into the season, You know, especially given that he did not shoot well his freshman year at Purdue. I mean, you know, he's not the most efficient offensive player, certainly 42, 33, 73 shooting splits. But... I mean, you know, the flashes with Jaden Ivey are exactly the kind of flashes that had me and many other people rating him as highly as they did, you know, heading into this season. And that that's exactly what they've been. They've been flashes. They haven't been the, the complete continuous story over the course of his rookie season, but he's been asked to do a lot. As we talked about, Nick, he's gone through plenty of growing pains. Defensively, he's he's still atrocious on the, on the defensive end for a guard, but what he has been able to do offensively when things have clicked for him, you mentioned the improvement in the three-point shooting. It's been there. I think as the year has gone on, he has progressed as a pick-and-roll ball handler, both scoring out of those play types, 
as well as assisting to others out of those play types. I think the at-rim finishing has gotten better, and, and as well as it should. He's so quick getting downhill. Who's actually going to, to get two feet in front of him and actually stop him from getting where he wants to go? But it's about the confidence when he gets there, and then if someone does wall him off, can he see where to kick the ball to next? I, I don't think he's perfect at that part of his offensive game, but I think he's getting better and he's on his way to getting there, which at the end of the day for a rookie, we want to see progression from you, especially if you're playing the games, the minutes to develop in a rookie year played in 55 games, started in 54 of them playing 30 minutes a night. He's gotten plenty of opportunity to show what he can do on the floor. And thankfully, at least for flashes, he's shown us what type of exciting ceiling he has. So as I wrote, Pistons fans should still be excited with the pick that they made with Jay Nivey, him and Duran and Cade Cunningham give them one of the best young trios across the league. Up next at number seven, the player who undoubtedly I was the most wrong about in last year's draft class, Walker Kessler, who is averaging eight points a game, eight rebounds a game, two blocks per game, 71% shooting in limited minutes, 21 PER, 70% true shooting for the Utah Jazz. Yeah, I mean, again, I was more wrong about him than pretty much anyone else in this class because he's basically just done everything that he did in his ridiculous season last year at Auburn in the NBA. And, you know, he has not gotten cooked when he's had to move his feet to the degree that I would have you know expected, which is That's why it was key. as low on him as I was. And, you know, he has just been ridiculously efficient in his playing time for the Utah Jazz. Now, Nick, you hit it. You hit the nail right on the head when talking about his mobility. That was the one thing I think we all wanted to kill him for in college. There were there were some some quotes that I saw, whether it was from us and No Ceilings or from some other people on on the fine interwebs of, of the tweeter, that <laughs> his feet were like cement blocks mo- moving around the court at sometimes, right? Like him being able to keep pace with smaller guards or, or, or more adept ball handling wings. We didn't know if that was going to happen. We knew that he was a deep drop big. We knew that he had the instincts, the timing, the strength to where it didn't matter whether you went into his body or not. He was probably going to come up with the block. But the fact that he's been able to cover as much ground as he has defensively in the NBA has been one of the bigger selling points for his case overall as a big man. Again, we knew some of the instincts, the technique were there. We knew that the the at-rim finishing was there, but we didn't know it was going to translate quite like this and then you see his willingness to mess around an all-star weekend try and take some of those corner threes i still think the jump shot will come around for him at some point it won't be immediate may not even be next year but i think at some point he's going to be a decent enough floor spacer from like the free at least the free throw line area out and that's just going to open up so much more of his offensive game to where he's not just a lob guy. He's not just a garbage bucket getter. You're going to have that type of value along with the tremendous defense that's record setting for an NBA rookie. Yeah, Walker Kessler has certainly impressed a lot of people. And you, you weren't the only one to be low on him, Nick. There, there were a lot of people, myself included, who ultimately, like, I, I, I was higher on him at one point. I had him inside my top 25. I backtracked on all of that and I got scared because of the same exact things that you brought up about the mobility, being able to handle different defensive coverages in the NBA. He has wiped away those concerns and then some. We should have been higher on him. We weren't. We all apologize to Walker Kessler. He is one of the best young big man in the league. Well, when we're talking about mobility and defensive game, we have to bring up the next player on the list, Jeremy (laughs) Sohan for the San Antonio Spurs. And 
the biggest news coverage that he's gotten this season has been from him switching to one-handed free throws. But I mean, serious credit to him for doing that as a 19-year-old. There are many 19-year-olds who would be far too embarrassed to do that kind of thing in public. And yet he's just gone with what's been the most effective for his game. And you know that's sort of what's gotten the headlines for Jeremy Sohan. But what I've been much more impressed with than you know all of that is he has spectacular defensive potential. He does. He he is one of the the better young defensive prospects that we can point to in the league because of his ability to cover multiple positions, his ability to hopefully one day play more of that small ball five type of role, while also being able to cover as much ground as he can on the perimeter. The the amount of coverages in which you can switch him, in which you can play him, it's it's staggering, and it's the reason why he has started more games than than I venture to say a, a, a number of rookies at least recently in in the San Antonio Spurs uh, lifespan with with Greg Popovich right he he's not a guy who wants to go out there and play a lot of rookies or give them big minutes or big responsibility he's done that with Jeremy Sohan and in large part it's paid off because his defense and we talk about this sometimes Nick on, on our draft shows you have to have one or two skills that we know are going to immediately come in and translate so that you can earn minutes to round out the other other parts of your game. We knew that Sohan was going to be good at defense coming in or you know, good, at, good for a rookie coming yeah. in. To where he'd, be, <laughs> he'd be incredibly respectable to earn those minutes on the NBA floor. We weren't sure about the offense. Now he's gotten the time to work on more of the offensive game and we've seen point Sohan blossom, Nick. And it's, it's been, that, that to me, that's what stood out to me over the last month is it's not just the fact that we saw like 30 point outbursts or like the high scoring outbursts. It's how he's gotten those points. He's become much, much more confident working on the ball, getting downhill, but then stopping, getting to his spots, even act, even getting to like the mid post area, hitting some turnaround fadeaway shots. Some of the jumpers are now starting to fall for him. It's we're seeing so much more of this offensive game besides just making one read, getting downhill, passing it to somebody else. He has become a de facto scoring threat for this Spurs team. And that evolution to his game, I didn't expect to come so quickly. So now we're looking at a, a two-way guy in the league who has as much upside as a number of players in this respective draft class. Up next at number nine, Jabari Smith Jr. for the Houston Rockets. And the defense and the defensive versatility has been there for him. My biggest concern about him heading into this season has not actually been what's been the real problem for him, which is he has just not been hitting his three-pointers at the level that we all expected for him coming into the draft. And, you know, I was concerned about his scoring game inside the arc. I was concerned about his ability to get to the rim, to get to the foul line, but you know, I, I bought into the shooting. I bought into the shooting and the defense, and that's, you know, why I had him at four on my board last year. And yet, man, it has been difficult for him offensively. You know, he had a sort of <laughs> sort of revival, sort of, you know, lifting himself out of the slump in December, early January, as you mentioned. And then sure. since then, it's been basically more of the same that we saw from him early in the season, just not knocking down his three-pointers at the level that he needs to to be the prospect that we all hoped he would be. When he is hitting those shots, that offense looks so much better. It's exactly what we would have envisioned for Houston coming into the season. The the results on that side of the ball are much more exciting. When he's not hitting those shots and he's not opening things up for their other ball handlers and their drivers and their attackers, it, it, it gets a little messy out there for Houston. And that's why they've been one of the worst teams in the league because they haven't had legitimate shooters like Jabari Smith really helping to anchor 
the trouble spots or, or I guess make up for some of the trouble spots within that offense that you talked about defensively. He's been as good as advertised defensively. I, I have no qualms with what he's shown defensively this year. Matter of fact, I think him and, and one of his teammates who we may touch on a little bit, Taris, and they've had a ton of defensive responsibility when they've been on the floor to really make up for, for other deficiencies from other players. Like Jalen Green's not a good defender yet. We know about Alper and Shengun's defensive worries. They, they, they don't have a ton of, of ball stoppers on that side of the ball. So you they have a ton of ball stoppers on the other side of the ball. <laughs> <laughs> that, that they do with those same cards. But nevertheless, <laughs> they, they need guys who can play within a team construct and who can cover ground and, and shore up some of those holes and fill some of those gaps. Jabari Smith has done that, but the offense, to your point, Nick, yeah, the, the shot just hasn't fallen. And when it hasn't, it's looked ugly. I, I get the concerns about we didn't expect him to be one of these guys who would take guys off the dribble and really find ways to, to better himself inside the arc because that's what he struggled with in college. We knew that wouldn't come right away, right? But the fact that he's not hitting the jump shots that he is, other than him looking a little nervous and, and a little too trigger happy out there to the point where like, I need to get this shot up. And if I don't get this shot up or I don't keep shooting, then I'm just going to keep staying in this slump. He seems a little nervous about the amount of shots he needs to force sometimes. Outside of that, I don't really see too many other reasons why he shouldn't be knocking down some of the shots that he's taking. He's just having one of those seasons and hopefully he bounce, bounces back next year to where we're looking at him and saying, yeah, this is what we expected from the third overall pick of the draft. And closing out the top 10 of the ladder, I don't think I was quite as wrong about this guy as I was about Walker Kessler, but Andrew Nemhard has been an incredibly solid backup point guard already. And I thought maybe he could get there eventually, but I thought he was probably going to be more of like a third string point guard. And instead, he's not only been a competent backup point guard, but he's actually started the majority of his games for the Indiana Pacers, which, you know, part of that is them continuing to want to bring Benedict Matherin off the bench. But Part of it also is that Andrew Nemhart has just been very, very solid, which, you know, that's the upside for him was going to be him being a very, very solid player across a number of different areas. And he's been that already and been that faster than certainly I would have expected. He has. He's the, he's been far from the only guard in, in lineups that he plays in, right? Matter of fact, he's he's played in some certain lineup constructions where you're looking at him as like the small forward, <laughs> given where given where and, and who he's guarding. And that's been really impressive to see, but we knew that he was an older guard, more experienced, stronger, good body to him. He can handle certain defensive assignments, and he especially can when he goes out there and wants to play the type of defense that he does. That that man is a dog on the defensive end. He doesn't give a shit what's coming to him from other players. He's going to go out there and do his job defensively. But offensively, I wrote about this a little bit in the piece, Nick, and I think it's, it's really good to bring up here again that the Pacers, they're – overachieving quote unquote to a certain extent this year I get that they had they've had the massive dip now since Halliburton went out but I'm talking really when Halliburton was in the lineup doing all the things that he's doing it's not only because they have Halliburton although he's like the biggest chunk to their success but having another guy like Andrew Nemhard who can do the things that he can do off the dribble right who can manipulate a defense and deliver the ball in a variety of situations that ensures that the offense doesn't grind to a halt and that every off-ball option, the play finishers, right, they can get the ball where they need it, and they can essentially do their job. So you're not asking too much of these other guys who we would categorize as play finishers. They have multiple guards who can step up and make plays for the guys like a Ben Matherin, like a Miles Turner, 
Jalen Smith, Chris Duarte, go, go up and down the buddy heel, go up and down the lineup. These are guys who are better off either spot up shooting, finish around the basket, being role guys. And when you have not only Tyrese Halliburton, who has shown that he can lead the league in assists, but you also have a guy like Nemhard who can either spell those minutes for him or can come and play alongside him, not give up anything defensively. Now you have two guys able to move the ball like that. It's done wonders for their offense and goes to show that Nemhard was certainly one of the right picks that Indiana made. So before we get to the last section here, I want to just briefly go through the honorable mentions on the rookie ladder. So first off, Tarjeeson of the Houston Rockets. He has been an absolute menace on the defensive end, especially at jumping passing lanes, which was exactly what I loved about him most when he was at LSU. And, you know, some of the offensive stuff has not been quite as advertised, but, you know, in terms of, we were talking about flashes with Jaden Ivey earlier. I mean, in terms of flashes, Tari Eason is definitely a top 10 guy, but the consistency has not always been there for him. Yeah, Tari Eason, again, the consistency that that's really been the, the main point as far as why he hasn't made my top 10. The, the, the high-end flashes for Tari Eason are freaking awesome, man, especially what he's able to do on defense as a playmaker, which is what we knew coming out of college he was likely going to continue doing in the NBA given his size, his athletic profile, and his gambling instincts. But as I called out before the draft, and it's it's not that I expect this to continue being a negative trend for him. I expect this to eventually correct itself. But I called out early on in that draft process that he was not a good finisher at the rim when it came to either going over the top of defenses or through certain defenders around the basket. That has reared its ugly head until he's rates out better than the 14th percentile and finishing at the rim his even with him improving as a shooter the rest of its game is not going to round itself out offensively and we're not going to see him live up to the potential tar Eason is not quite a shooter yet but someone who definitely is aj griffin of the atlanta hawks and he's ended up starting a few games and you know been playing pretty consistently for this hawks team all season and Really, the entirety of that is just he has exceptional touch, and he's just recently dipped below 40% from three-point range, but, I mean, he's been hovering around that 40% mark from deep all year, and, you know, all of the concerns about A.J. Griffin's defense or his injuries, you know, any at all of the above, they have been erased to some extent by just how ridiculous he's been on the offensive end of the floor. Yep, my first sentence I wrote in the column, look up the word touch in the dictionary and you're going to find a picture of A.J. Griffin because what he's done, it's not just the three-point shooting, Nick. It's really what he does when he gets two feet in the paint. That floater game is freaking awesome, man. And I had a conversation with somebody else on social media a, a week ago before I started writing the column where we were talking about why is A.J. Griffin's floater so good? And he brought up how strong of a base AJ Griffin has, right? And it's not just he has that base to essentially keep himself balanced at all times to get those looks off. It's also the fact that if a defender comes up on him, he can keep somebody on his hip to where they're not bothering or disrupting that floater, right? So regardless of where he's getting his shot off, he's kind of always getting it off in the same rhythm, whether he's open or contested because of his body control, because of his physique, because of his strength, his positioning where he takes those shots, and not to mention the touch, the ball coming off of his hands, his fingertips. It's, it's, it's cash money more times than not. This, the number of soft makes that we see from Adrian Griffin, I can't stress that enough. When you're evaluating shooting, you don't just want to evaluate if the ball goes in, you want to evaluate how the ball goes in. If that ball's just rattling around the rim all the time on the way down, 
that's not necessarily the, the the sure sign of this guy might be on his way to an elite being an elite shooter. If that swoosh makes right through the net every single time, that's much more of a better indicator. And AJ Griffin, that's what we knew coming out of college. It's worked for him in the NBA. And finally, closing out the honorable mentions, you have the seventh and eighth picks in the last draft here, Dyson Daniels and Shaden Sharp. So starting quickly with Dyson Daniels, the defense has been as advertised. The passing and playmaking has been as advertised. The scoring game could use some work, certainly. But, I mean, given how much offensive firepower this New Orleans team has, his ability to move the ball as well as he has and cover a bunch of positions defensively as a 6'8 guard has been a huge boost for this New Orleans Pelicans team. And, you know, they've they've sort of rocketed up and down the standings all season long based on injury concerns, mostly around Zion Williamson. But Dyson Daniels has been really huge for them on the defensive end. And, you know, the offense, he's kept the ball moving. He's been an excellent passer. And hopefully the rest of his offensive game comes around sooner rather than later. Exactly. With Dyson Daniels, as well as Shane Sharp, I mean, we can really speak about the both of them at the same time because they're playing similar roles for teams that – hope to be in the playoff conversation or at least further in the playoff conversation than where they're currently at. Obviously both teams for different reasons, but they're young guys who they're able to offer up certain things right now in the short term with Dyson Daniels. It's the defense and it's the playmaking and, and the shooting hasn't been as bad as we probably thought it was going to be in his rookie season, but the defense and the playmaking. And then with Shaden Sharp, Shaden Sharp can come in and spell some wings slash guards within the Portland Trailblazers rotation he can offer up some of those really exciting plays to get the crowd going. He can be a cutter. He can be a shooter. So he's on the floor to really be an offensive spark off the bench in 20 minutes per night. Dyson Daniels spark off the bench just in a different way. 19.9 minutes a night for the defense and for the playmaking. Both are helping two Western Conference teams trying to make the playoffs and certainly doing their part and keeping their names relevant in discussions when we talk about the rookies. All right, so now we're going to wrap up here with some of the the under-the-radar rookie highlights. And there are a few players here that we're just going to touch on briefly before we get into the two guys who have been, I think, the most surprising under-the-radar rookie highlights. I think that's pretty clear to say. But starting off, Mark Williams, he has been pretty effective for the Greensboro Swarm. He's had moments with the big league club, but... You know, he hasn't quite been at the same level as Jalen Duran, certainly, but you know, he's had some solid moments and certainly in terms of defense, you know, shot blocking, being a seven foot two guy who can really get up, you know, that'll be huge for the Hornets in the long term. But this year he spent most of his time in the G League. Similarly to his Greensboro Warren slash Charlotte Hornets teammate, Bryce McGowan's. <laughs> Bryce McGowan's has been a long-running joke between you and I in particular, but certainly in terms of, you know, him putting up a ton of points on pretty efficient shooting splits, that's, you know, very impressive from him. That's hopefully something that we'll get to see more of at the NBA level going forward, but certainly in terms of his G League play, he's been quite impressive. Then Malachi Branham, who is someone that I think we were both very high on in last year's draft, pretty sure we both had him in the lottery if I'm remembering correctly. He's actually started a few games for the Spurs, you know, after spending a lot of time, you know, early on in the season, basically nailed to the end of the bench. He's been playing a lot more recently. And as you mentioned, in February, he's averaging 18 points on 51, 41, 71 shooting splits. That's not bad. That's pretty solid there from Malachi Branham. And then, you know, you also mentioned repeatedly the other Jalen Williams, uh, (laughs) Jay Will, as opposed to Jay Dub. Tyler Metcalf will hate me forever for mentioning Jalen Williams because I don't think there is a player who he enjoys less when he's taking charges, but certainly those are helpful on the defensive Mm -hmm. end in terms of getting possession for your team 
and you know it's limited sample, but he's shooting forty seven percent from the floor and forty five percent from deep. That's going to play, and that's going to get yeah. him more minutes in the longer term. He's even started a few games for the Thunder, but you know, pretty minimal minutes load. But he's been someone who's been helpful for them as you know, just someone who could be a versatile defender, fill a lot of gaps for them. Someone who is not particularly thought of as a defensive player, but that doesn't particularly matter when you're scoring at the ridiculous level that he is. Jaden Hardy, who has been absolutely destroying any and all G League comers in terms of his scoring game. You put a shot chart from him in the G League in the article, which if you have not read the article, first of all, read the article. But second of all, just look at that chart chart. There's there's so much more in the piece that we just can't get to because of the time of trying to keep a, a timely recorded podcast. There's so much information in this column. But yeah, the shot chart, if you just want to open up the piece to look at the shot chart itself, trust me, it's worth it because it's freaking ridiculous. And the last two players in the section that we get to before we're going to talk about two other guys at some length. So Christian Brown of the Denver Nuggets, um, he has basically just been a gap filler and an irritant for the Denver Nuggets. And that's the kind of piece that they could really use and have been, you know, really using alongside Nikola Jokic and Aaron Gordon and the rest of that Nugget squad. And then finally, Ty Ty Washington, who has spent, you know, most of his time in the G League, other than, you know, occasional stints at the end of the Houston bench. But when he's been in the G League, he's been ridiculously efficient. He's someone who, you know, it'll be interesting to see where his sort of long-term fit is with the Rockets, given the amount of guard depth that they have. But, I mean, in terms of what he's done in the G League, he's been a spectacular scorer. And he did have a 53-point game, which, you know, hard to, hard to do much better than that. Yeah, Ty Ty Washington, if anyone has not watched the highlights from his 53-point explosion with the Rio Grande Valley Vipers, please Please go ahead and watch that. I have the highlights linked in, in my column. But what Ty Ty Washington did in that game showed you every single thing related to his upside that we all pointed out and no ceilings and why. For a lot of the season, he was pegged as a lottery-type player, but really for a lot of people, didn't fall out of the top 20 or the top 25 of their boards. He was a first-round guard for a reason, folks, and, and he's coming. He just needs some time. He needed a little bit of time to get his legs underneath him. I think he's getting closer and closer to that to where I'd expect some sort of breakout, whether it's as a backup point guard spot starter level, or maybe even going beyond that. We don't know what Houston's going to do as far as shaking their roster up. Maybe he's playing a different role on a different team. Who the heck knows? Bottom line, I would bet on some sort of breakout for Ty Ty Washington next season. And closing out with two guys who were not first round guards, but who are guards who have stood out to you enough to put them on this recent rookie rank. So, we're going to start here with Jonathan Williams of the Salt Lake City Stars slash Utah Jazz. And he has been ridiculously efficient as a scorer in the G League. You know, only 12 and a half points per game. But I mean, the numbers he's putting up 53% from the floor, 42% from three point range, 78% from the free throw line. Again, that's 66.2% true shooting. And, you know, as you mentioned, he's someone who has been really consistent at the G league level and could hopefully earn a call up. I mean, really the biggest thing for me with him is he just has a great understanding of relocation of getting himself open, you know, especially from beyond the arc. And that's the kind of skill that is really huge for someone who, you know, is going to be a role player, right? His ability to relocate, get himself open from deep will be huge for, you know, him playing up at the NBA level. 
No, it's a great point, Nick. He is he is excellent at relocating and finding spots to catch the ball and get a shot off. He also has really good footwork for a guard his size. He utilizes footwork and his body fakes to get to the basket and finish inside. I mean, the threat of his outside shot certainly helps him get those looks right. He shoots 42.4% from three-point range. You look at his statistics, Nick, and this was one of the reasons why I wanted to watch a little bit of his film. We talk about guys who we see their production in college, and we're not sure if it's always going to translate in the same way. Well, what what Williams was doing in his senior season at Buffalo, he has essentially matched those statistics pound for pound, playing up a level in the NBA G League, and he's done it consistently. He's played in 39 games. He's played 27 minutes a night for the Salt Lake City Stars. We know at his, with his physical profile, six foot five, someone who can shoot like him, someone who has the footwork, the touch, the balance to be able to do multiple things offensively. And even though he is not a defensive stopper by any means, he is still a physical guard to where he can hold his own guarding against either of those backcourt spots, potentially at the NBA level. And you look at that, those were a lot of the reasons why I thought he was a, a top 100 player. At, at one point, I think I even had him inside my top 80. He was an identifiable talent for a reason. And part of scouting, Nick, and, and we don't talk about this enough, but it's not just watching the college guys or the, the fun international Euro prospects who might be the next to come overseas or come up a level and play in the NBA as rookies. There's an aspect of pro personnel scouting to where it's important to also watch Who's balling out in the G League? NBA teams have guys who are dedicated to pro personnel scouting, watching these levels of competition and seeing, is this guy worth an Exhibit 10 deal? Is this guy maybe worth promoting to a, a two-way deal? What, what will it take for somebody to earn a guaranteed contract in the league? That's the type of scouting I don't think is discussed enough. And a reason why I wanted to talk about Williams as well as Jamari Bouye, who we'll touch on in a second. But Williams... As I wrote, Nick, I, I think he's shown enough matching that consistency and that production to where teams should absolutely look at giving him an Exhibit 10 deal or, or maybe potentially offering him a two-way contract next season. Those kinds of under-the-radar talents can help fill out the end of a bench. And who knows, maybe even swing a game or two in the regular season when you need to rely on that kind of depth. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of people might just look at the basic line of, oh, he's only averaging 12 points in the G League. How's this an NBA guy? It's like, well, he's going to do exactly what he's doing there, except, you know, up a level. And given that, you know, so much of his game is his shooting and, you know, his ability to relocate, get himself open from deep, you know, he at the NBA level, you know, would be doing essentially the same thing, except in, you know, 10 to 15 minutes a night as opposed to the 27 minutes a night he's getting in the G League. Exactly. And that's that's really the most important part. I agree 100%. And finally, if we're talking about, you know, pro personnel scouting, the team that's probably done the best with finding guys who fit their system in the G League and getting them onto the NBA roster has signed the last player on this list. So Jamari Bouye out of San Francisco. And he is, you know, he's putting up a little bit more in terms of scoring numbers than Williams did. But, you know, he's he's had a solid start for the heat i mean you know four games he's hitting 40 percent of his threes of course tiny sample size because again literally four games but you know with bouye i mean he's someone who's got a really smooth handle he's great at getting into his shots from deep both off the ball and on the ball and he's absolutely absurd in transition i think the thing that stands out to me most with jamari bouye is you know we talk a lot about sort of three level scorers and there's a difference between being a three level scorer and 
being a three level scorer who, you know, takes advantage of what the defense gives them rather than just trying to find the nearest shot that they can get to. And with Bouye, he's really good at taking advantage of what the defense gives him, you know, even if it's not necessarily what his first thought was in terms of trying to get his offense out of that one play. Yeah, he had eyes on him at San Francisco because of his water bug-like quickness, his shooting ability off the bounce, his ability to play make out of screen roll actions. He's he's a guard who's on the smaller side, but if you have that level of quickness to where you've proven you can get to your spots on the floor, you're a trusted perimeter shot creator, which I know the three-point shot hasn't necessarily been perfect at the G League level. He's taken a good amount of threes, but he's only hit 30% of them, but still... The types of shots that he can get to as far as pull-ups and then getting all the way to the basket inside the arc, getting to the free throw line. He has shown enough at the G League level to where he was given an Exhibit 10 deal by the Miami Heat. He had a chance on a 10-day contract to prove to himself that, hey, even if it's not here, I may very well be worth a roster spot somewhere. Now, they may still keep him. There were essentially two spots open with his expiration of his 10-day deal. Kevin Love is going to sign with the Miami Heat. They have one roster spot open. They can give that to Bouye. They can promote Orlando Robinson. They can go a different direction by signing another vet with a roster spot. I don't know what's going to happen to Bouye after this 10-day contract, but just being able to highlight a good story for somebody who got an opportunity to prove, maybe I am better than just a G League stint right in the United States. Maybe I can play at the NBA level and exhibit enough to where, you know, playing in 32 games in the G League, playing 35 minutes a night, I've begun paying my dues. Maybe I'm worth another opportunity to prove I can do more. The Miami Heat gave him that, hopefully another team. If not, still with Miami, will give him the chance to show off more of a scoring package. Because, yeah, Nick, you talked about it. When he has it going offensively, he is a dynamic shot maker, a dynamic playmaker, and NBA teams could always use a little bit of that coming off the bench, even if it's from a 10th, 11th, 12th man. Just again, that depth at the end of the bench to where you, if you need to call upon somebody at the end of a game or in, in a close regular season game, maybe you have a guys out, a few guys out due to injury, load management, whatever the case may be, you need to have the depth on those rosters for regular season games. You never know when a guy like that could swing a game or two, just like with Williams. And, you know, with Bouye, I mean, he's an undersized guard, as you mentioned, but he also, you know, is averaging six rebounds a game in the G League. You know, he's not someone who's afraid of getting into the paint on either end. And that's really a great way to make up for a size disadvantage is just, you know, working your ass off and, you know, hustling after every play. And getting six rebounds a game is impressive for anyone at the G League level. Getting it as a 6'2 guard is outstanding. I'd say 17, 6, and 6 on the splits that he has in 35 minutes a night in the G League. I'd I'd say that's worth a look by somebody, and I'm glad that Miami was the team to do it. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this one up? No, we, we covered an extensive amount of ground in this rookie rank column. So, again, I'll just say to the audience, We tried to cover a lot on this podcast. We could not cover everything that's in this column. So please go noceilingsmba.com, read Rookie Rank Volume 3. I promise it is worth your time. I did a lot of work on this one. I'm very proud of the end result. Got a lot of nice buzz traction on social media when it was released. So I'm very thankful for that. So yeah, if you haven't checked it out already, please go ahead and do so and Use it as as a primer to get ready for my last rookie rank, which will drop in April. That will be my final 10-man ballot. So I'm sure Nick will have me back on the podcast then so that we can argue where I have Keegan Murray when it's all said and done, when I'm turning in my quote-unquote results. 
Well, all right. If you have Keegan Murray below, say, seven, then I guess I'll have to uh, leave no ceilings. But Fight, no. words. <laughs> there you go. All right. Anything you want to plug beyond that rookie rank before we close this one out? No, that's what I got going that, that came out this week. You certainly will be another Draft Deeper episode as well as a morning dunk column next week. I'm back with writing. If you missed Draft Deeper this past weekend, we did do our mock posit draft 4.0. Some spicy picks made on that, to say the least, by my, my good co-host, Stephen Gillespie. So if you haven't listened to that as well, go ahead and check it out. And as always, you can find me on Twitter. You can follow me at Draft Deeper for all of my witty banter, as well as commentary back and forth with other members of No Ceilings and within the draft community at large. All right. Well, he is Nathan Gribble. As you mentioned, you can find him on Twitter at Draft Deeper. If you have not read the rookie rank volume, why are you at this point in the podcast? But also go ahead and go back and <laughs> read that column. Also, definitely check out the Draft Deeper recent mock draft that they did. That was a ton of fun, even with Steven absolutely wilding out at points in that. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on noceilingsmba.com as well as Nathan's. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback on the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.